is Alyssa. And I'm Vanessa. And you're listening to Dear Literature, a podcast where two friends discuss books, writing, and publishing. Everything we talk about in this episode can be found in the show notes. Today we're wrapping up our reading and writing gear, but before that, Vanessa, what have you read recently and what are you currently reading? One of my recent reads is The Haunting of Hell House by Shirley Jackson, and I have the Penguin Classics version, which I actually got at a secondhand bookstore. So please support your local businesses, your secondhand shops, and your indie stores during the holiday season, and just all the time. But if you don't know about The Haunting of Hill House, it's a book about this very strange house where a lot of death and misfortune has happened for several generations, and this doctor who's very interested in the paranormal and the supernatural aspects of this house, he goes up there and he enlists the help of several people with sort of supernatural leaning. So there is a woman named Theodora who is very good at reading cards and guessing what numbers are on the cards or what faces are on the cards. So it's kind of like a supernatural power that she has. And then this woman named Eleanor who as a child had a sort of ghostly incident happen at her house. And also the nephew of the woman who owns Hill House. His family doesn't live there, they just own the property, but they allow the doctor and his three enlisted helpers to check out what's happening. And I'm not very far in, I'm only 60 pages in, they're still on the first day. But it's very interesting, you can just feel the spookiness of it. You know that there's something wrong with Hill House, and you know that there's something unnatural about it, but you can't say what. It almost feels like the house is alive, so I'm excited for the actual ghostly action to happen and to learn more about horror and and what it means to write horror. I love the fact that neither of us are mood readers or seasonal readers, because this is absolutely a book that I know a lot of people are picking up around, you know, October spooky season. It's like, no, it's December, (laughs) and we're we're gonna read this book. That sounds super interesting, though. I've actually never heard a description of this book before. Shirley Jackson, she has some other horror books, right? Yes, a number of them. Her most famous short story is The Lottery. Oh, yes! Yes, 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 yes! Yeah, so that's very much up my alley. Like, I have written stories that professors have said, Have you read Shirley Jackson? I'm like, yes, I have read Shirley Jackson. Thank you for complimenting me in that way. (laughs) I absolutely adore what I've read of her, and I want to keep reading more. And you know sometimes when you read older books, this isn't very old, but you know when you read older books and you have to adjust your sense of humor? to like enjoy the book you know like have you ever read like for example like Jane Austen and been like ah that's a good joke Jane Austen even though like it's a good joke for somebody of the time period I'm actually laughing at Shirley Jackson like I'm actually laughing at her character's antics like fully I'm not adjusting my sense of humor for writing of the time I'm laughing as if this were written in like 2019 so I'm excited to keep reading and to see the actual ghosts come out I'm assuming there are actual ghosts because the house is very scary. See, the thing is, you've said that before specifically about Jane Austen novels, and I feel like that, I don't know, listeners, let me know if this is something that you do as well, because this is not something that I experience a lot of the time. It's So far, I just feel like this is a Vanessa thing. Maybe, maybe. And then to balance out the horror, we have The Invisible Life of Ivan Asenko by Scott Stambach from Wednesday Books, which is on my bookshelf backlist. So I'm sticking to my promise and I'm getting to it. And it's really good so far. Um, I have already described it before, so I'm not going to go into too much detail about it. But it is set in Belarus in this children's hospital. And Ivan is this boy with a lot of... Um, 
medical conditions that make it very difficult for him to just like exist in the world. Every description that I've read of this book has neglected to mention that the reason why all these children are sick is because they're suffering from the after effects of radiation from the Chernobyl reactor disaster. That is a really important detail that everybody has neglected to mention because there's like a direct cause for why these children are super sick and like some of them have like holes in their hearts, other of them are just like experiencing like really strange effects of radiation that you know nobody knew at the time because they there wasn't enough time to like know what was going on but yeah I don't know that makes it much more interesting to me because I'm I didn't know a lot about Chernobyl in school we didn't really talk about it a lot but I'm infinitely fascinated by it and sort of the effects on the environment and the people obviously recognizing that there was neglect on the part of the government and that a lot of people died and got sick that shouldn't have but at the same time I'm really interested in any work about it because it's something that I'm not very familiar with. I feel like that's that's very much way to bury the lead on the copy of that book. It's bizarre and it's set in 2005 so the Chernobyl disaster happened in the 80s so and I've been 17 so that's why and that's another detail. I'm making a face right now because I I was going to ask the time period, but after the description that Vanessa gave, I assumed it was like directly after this uh, accident, but interesting. So it's the, it's the effects of children born of parents. Oh, okay. Right. So like the Chernobyl disaster happened, parents, the parents were exposed to radiation, that radiation affected the children as they were being developed. And then when they were born, they were born with all these uh, medical conditions and they've been in the hospital for their entire lives for the most part. Like, Ivan's been there his whole life. And his um his love interest, Paulina, is a recent um, patient at the hospital. She just gets there and she has leukemia. Okay, well, I look forward to hearing your report on this book. And some other books that I have read recently. I reread Fangirl by Rainbow Rowell from St. Martin's Griffin uh, for <laughs> the third time. And Alyssa cannot judge me on this because I know that she's not a big rereader of books, but I am. And that's just who I am as a person. And I've also read in this time, Lays of Marie de France by Marie de France. And those are a collection of folk tales from France that were written and sort of documented by this French aristocrat, Marie. And they're really interesting. If you like Grimm's fairy tales, if you like stories about knights and princesses and werewolves and people that transform into animals you'll like this but what about you Lisa? what have you read recently well i'm currently reading the water dancer by ta-nehisi coates and this is from one world this is the last book i'm reading for one of my classes i'm about halfway through and i'm still i'm still formulating my thoughts on this but it's a hmm it's either magical realism or literary fiction with magical realism elements, but The Water Dancer, we are following Hiram Walker. This is told from the first person perspective, and he's narrating his life story. So uh, being born an enslaved man, and we're following his life story. So going from when he was born, um, he's born enslaved in a plantation in Virginia and then following him throughout that what his early life is like and the section I'm in right now is 
I'm guessing the middle of his life. I don't know how long he lived. Actually, wait, no. I do- okay, I know that he's still alive when he's telling this story, I just don't know how old he is, but it- it's told in the retrospective, um, still formulating my thoughts on this. This came out last year, so there's a lot of- there's a lot of buzz around this book. Uh, some other books that I have finished recently include The Voyage of the Sable Venus by Robin Coast Lewis, um, from Knopf, and We Slept Here by Sarah DeMilder from Button Poetry. Alright, so getting into our topic of the day, we have our 2020 wrap-up. It has been a year, and we're not going to harp on that too much, because we all know it's been a year. And we have a few questions for each other. Uh, Vanessa, the question I have for you today, what are your top five favorite books of the year? I've been very lucky to read a lot of wonderful books this year for class and also just for my personal reading but these are the five books that I have not stopped thinking about some of them I've read multiple times this year um, so in no particular order we have Nine Faust by Lee Bardugo from Flatiron Books I spoke about Nine Faust in our spooky titles episode but for those of you who haven't listened to it or don't remember it Nine Faust is about a student at Yale named Alex who has a very mysterious past and she is running out of options in terms of what she can do with her life and it's either go to prison or go to Yale and work for the administration in monitoring the secret societies at Yale. So Alex can see ghosts and she has experience with the supernatural so her job is to make sure that the secret societies at Yale don't get out of hand with their rituals and their magic. And if you can't tell from that description, it is urban fantasy. <laughs> when I bought Nine Fouls, I thought that it was going to be uh, like literary fiction, but it was not to my delight. Alex is looking over these secret societies, making sure things don't get out of hand, and then a girl dies on campus. And nobody thinks that the secret societies are involved, but Alex knows differently, and it's about her investigating this girl's death and getting involved with the sort of webs of power and money at Yale. Content notes for violence, sexual assault, drug and alcohol use, and I am missing a few probably, but Nine Faust is adult fiction, so just be mindful of that when you're approaching this text. Next up, we have The Invisible Life of Eddie LaRue by V.E. Schwab from Tor Books, because we can never get enough of V.E. Schwab. And Eddie LaRue is about this French girl in the late 1600s who does not want to get married but she is forced to by her family and she makes a deal with the devil to get out of it and so what happens is that her and the devil make a pact where Addie gets to live forever but she's forgotten by everybody she meets so nobody remembers her so she basically floats throughout 300 years of history not being remembered until she meets this bookseller in New York who remembers her name and everything changes. It moves back and forth between the present, which I believe is 2013 in New York City, and Addie throughout Europe and America throughout those 300 years. So we see her in the 1700s, the 1800s, 1900s, during various political, economic, and social conflicts across Europe and America. And it's really interesting. We get to see a firsthand look at various wars and life in those regions at those times 
and Victoria Schwab did an incredible amount of research because this book has taken her, I believe, 10 years to write, something like that. Edith LaRue is a long-term project, capital L, long-term. So it's not an easy book to read. I wouldn't say it's a, it's a fast read, but it's incredibly rewarding. And it's about art and history and love, and, and I really like it. Book number three is Truly Devious by Maureen Johnson from HarperCollins, which I have read for the second time this year, so that's how you know it's good. And Truly Devious is about a girl named Stevie who attends this very prestigious school in the Vermont mountains to investigate a kidnapping that happens there in the 1930s, and then crime ensues on campus in the present day, and it's moving in between those timelines, and she's sort of a junior detective trying to investigate things with the help of her friends. And we had a Buddy Reads episode on this, so if you want to check out our episode on that as well, please do. Book number four is Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado from Grey Wolf Press. It is a collection of short stories revolving around women and their bodies, and it's magical realism, so all sorts of spooky things happen to women's bodies in this book. I don't want to spoil anything about these stories, so let's just say that hijinks ensue with these women's bodies, and it's just a beautiful collection of short stories, and I will talk about it later on the podcast, so I'll keep my thoughts to myself. And then the last book is Three Dark Crowns by Kendara Blake from Quiltree Books. It is a book about these three triplets separated at birth and are raised by various factions of this country. One of them will grow up to be a queen and the other two will be killed by said queen. So these girls are raised to be in competition with each other. They each have their power. One is a naturalist, which means that she can control plants and nature and animals. Uh, the other is a poisoner, which means that she's skilled at poisons and she can eat poisonous things and not get sick. And the third is an elementalist, which means that she can control the elements such as air or fire and water. And they're basically raised separate from each other trained to kill each other and then when they reach a certain age they are ready to basically go to battle and fight for the crown but situations happen that make that very difficult including meeting each other and realizing that they probably should not be killing each other for a crown so it's a really good series it's four books and i recommend it what about you Alyssa? what are your top five books of the year also in no particular order, aside from when I read them. Exhalation by Ted Chiang from Knopf. This is a speculative fiction short story collection, and I referenced this in episode 3, very forcefully telling Vanessa to read this. Chiang's writing is incredible. I just get mad reading his writing because I'm like, how come I didn't do that? You may be familiar with his work from... Uh, Arrival, the movie Arrival, which is based on his short story, Story of Your Life. The collection that's in is Story of Your Life and Others. His writing is exquisite, highly recommend. Uh, in June, I read Lovely War by Julie Berry. I listened to this on audiobook. I referenced this in episode zero. It is a historical romance with some fantastical elements, and it is set in alternating timelines between World War II and World War I, and we are actually being told the story of these different characters in World War I by Greek gods in World War II. Wow, this was super cool. Greek mythology, you know, you sell me there, but the writing is also amazing. I'm going to talk about this more 
later in the episode. Uh, then I read Layer of Dreams by Libba Bray. I listened to this on audiobook, and it's read by January Lavoie. I know people have, like, auto-buy-authors. That doesn't exist for me. However, I do have auto-listen for January Lavoie. Like, if she reads something, I will pick it up. I will pick it up for her. And this is the second book in the Diviner series, which we talk about nearly every single episode, but Layer of Dreams is... I'm still thinking about it. I'm still thinking about my faves. I can't spoil it, but... Name your fave. The fave that's a spoiler? Her name isn't a spoiler. Her existence kind of is. Just say her name. No. Okay. <laughs> um. <laughs> and after that, I read Kona Wins by Scott Kikawa, and this is from Bamboo Ridge Press. Disclaimer and disclosure, I interned with Bamboo Ridge Press this summer, and I received this book for free. However, I was completely surprised with how much I enjoyed this book. This is a historical retro noir set in late 1940s Hawaii, and we are following Detective Frankie uh, Yoshikawa, whose nickname is The Sheik, and he is a detective with the Honolulu Police Department. We're following him with this murder of this young woman, and we're going through and uncovering different corruption, and I was, again, I'm, if you can't tell, I was just really stunned with how much I enjoyed this. Um, the narrator's voice is super compelling, and this is Kikawa's debut novel. And the final book that I read this year that absolutely blew me away is Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex by Angela Chen. This came out from Beacon Press this year, and I referenced this in multiple episodes, particularly in depth on episode two. And this is a nonfiction that is weaving in research, memoir, and Chen is exploring asexuality, what does it mean in society, and it's just a really phenomenal read. I recommend everyone to read this book. It's great nonfiction. That description of Kona Wins really blew me away. I know, and that's a genre I don't read. Like, that's just a genre I don't read. Out of all the books you've read this year, which book surprised you the most? Lovely War surprised me, because like we talked about in episode three, neither of us really care about romance, and Lovely War is a historical romance, but... I think what worked for me here is the fact that it's a, like, we're following two couples, and they're both very much slow burn romances, and it's just really sweet, and it's not, they're romances, and again, this is set during war, but it's not romanticizing war. So the fact that it's not romanticizing war, and there is this romance, and it is exploring, like, what does it mean to love someone when at any moment either of you could die was interesting and the fact that there's also the interaction of the mortals and the gods in this it's like the the gods are telling this story but the mortals aren't aware of them so it's the mortals still have their own agency and it's like the gods intervene in certain situations but it's just really funny to hear this story this like very sweet love story from Aphrodite, Ares, and Apollo. If you can listen to this on audio, I highly recommend it. 
it, there is a fairly big musical component to this. And also, if you're reading or listening to this, I also highly recommend listening to the author's note at the end because I think it's really interesting and important. But yeah, historical romance did not expect that to make a top five. Shout out to Haley and Bookland who brought up this book in one of her videos. So far, all the books that I've picked up that she's mentioned, I've actually really enjoyed. So shout out. Vanessa, which book surprised you the most this year? Surprise, surprise, people. It's The Odyssey by Homer, translated by Emily Wilson. I'm not being facetious. It truly did surprise me. I have a complicated history with The Odyssey. I was forced to read it at age 14. You know, Robert Fagel translation, blah. <laughs> I have to say it every time I say his name. I'm sorry, Robert. But I truly enjoyed reading The Odyssey this time around because Emily Wilson's translation is a modernized version. She changed the sentence structure. She worked really hard on finding a way of making the language accessible to a wider audience and perhaps one that isn't as academically minded democratizing the text for people who aren't scholars or college students and she has spoken at length about the difficulties of translating from ancient greek to english she writes about it a lot on her twitter and we've actually looked at her twitter for class and i recommend that you check out her translator notes on twitter yeah there's just a, a limited vocabulary and it's difficult to translate from ancient greek to english because of the discrepancies she's the first published female translator of the odyssey and i truly enjoyed reading it and I will be taking a course next semester about the Odyssey and its various reinventions by a number of authors. And I am kind of terrified because Ulysses by Joyce is on there. And it is notoriously like one of the most difficult texts to read in an academic environment. And I thought I would get away in my college years without having to read it. But alas, Ulysses is on the syllabus. But we will see. I enjoyed the Odyssey quite a bit. So hopefully that luck continues with the retellings. And in the further adventures of Alyssa is very vain about books, I guess, the cover of this edition of the Odyssey is gorgeous. Gorgeous. Spectacular. This is a podcast where we talk about books, writing, and publishing. So Vanessa, what's a piece of writing or writing project that you wrote or completed this year that you are most proud of? I'm quite proud of myself for finishing my manuscript. It's been something I've had in my mind for a very long time. It's had a number of partial first drafts, but never a completed one. And I finally finished it this August, right before classes started, to you know, to make sure that I could actually get it out the door before taking classes. And I'm proud of myself. It has characters. It has a plot. It has uh, 93,000 words. I hope that during a holiday break, I can work on it and make it better and make it into something I'm really proud of. Ah, yes, Vanessa, notorious overwriter, is returns, but I am also very proud of you for finishing your manuscript. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, you're, you're going to be my beta reader, right? <laughs> yeah, beta reader, critique partner, whatever you decide to give me. <laughs> Both, all, all the above. All? <laughs> All everything. Everything. Second in command. Sous chef. <laughs> what about you? 
It took me a while to actually put something on here because I couldn't think of any writing that I was particularly proud of, but I finished a creative nonfiction essay recently that is about my grandma and I haven't really written about her since senior year of high school. And I'm proud of this piece because it's probably some of the most intricate braiding that I have done in an essay and braiding it's a common creative nonfiction device where you're taking in like various elements and then, as the name suggests, braiding them together into a piece. This is a piece that I think, like, without going into specifics, this is a piece that I could only write now with enough distance from the subject. And when I finished writing this, I was already extremely excited to revise this essay. And I think valuing revision is one of the most wonderful things that I am taking away from my uh, intermediate nonfiction workshop. I just, I am now excited to go into revision because it doesn't mean that the first version of something is bad. It just means that looking at a piece, what else can I do here? That's really exciting. I'm happy for you now that you've found this new way of looking at revision. I remember the first time that you spoke about the poetry collection on the podcast, you'd said something along the lines of, now if you were to write it again, it would be a creative nonfiction essay, and that's how you would approach your next, um, your next attempt about writing about your grandma. Do you feel like you've, you've done that? Like you've done the thing? I have done a first draft of the thing. It's good that you, at the very least, accomplished what you wanted to do, and it can still keep evolving and changing, but at least you did the thing that you set out to do. Definitely. What is a reading habit that you developed this year that you're proud of, Vanessa? I have regressed to my middle school slash high school self because now I am reading before bed and letting the book reading make me tired and then going to sleep. It doesn't sound like a particularly like unique strategy or something. It's not like I'm developing a very special reading habit. But I did lose that when starting university because I'm not going to speak for Alyssa, but at, at the very least, I felt like I had a lot of reading for my classes. And a lot of that involved me just reading for my classes and not setting aside time for my personal reading. So I would read for class and I would just never read my personal stuff. I'm going back to the habit that I had for my middle school and high school days and also just for my entire childhood of reading before bed and letting that help me fall asleep because I do have difficulty falling asleep but reading always relaxed me and I'm glad I've I've gotten that back because I was a little ashamed of myself for not reading as frequently as I wish I would. I mean Vanessa what I'm proud of this year is the fact that I'm actually reading books that aren't for school. Uh, I think I've mentioned this on a previous episode of the podcast but I just like from a period of like seventh grade to this year <laughs> I just like kind of stopped reading books for fun. So this year I'm just really proud of myself for getting back into reading for fun and also getting back into series and big books and I entirely blame Vanessa for this. Both of those points. Since you've been reading a lot recently, which books have made you think about writing craft the most? Okay, so I have two books here. The first book, it's actually a book that I didn't enjoy. It's The Hazelwood by Melissa Albert and this is from Flatiron Books. And there's quite a few reasons why this book didn't work for me. I listened to this on audio and 
The point that I'm going to talk about here is the very careless use of similes, where as I was listening to this, I just... You could play a very dangerous drinking game with how many times a simile is used, and the simile is used ineffectively. So what I'm saying by that is it's... Albert would use a lot of just comparisons in the novel without any direction. It was just she would use a simile for the sake of using a simile instead of using a simile to further the reader's understanding of something. And it just drove me wild because I I think this may be because I'm coming from a poetry background or just like, you know a reader background of why is this here? Why is this here? It serves no purpose. You're just wasting my time. You're providing an image that's not helping with anything. Um, And this is something that I was thinking about with this book. And recently there was metaphor discourse uh, within the poetry, online poetry community. Um, When I say online poetry community, I mean poets who are on the social internet and i would direct all of you if you're on instagram to take a look at a highlight in ocean vong's uh page that just says metaphor and we'll link to that in the show notes but in that he's going in depth about similes and metaphors and the expansiveness um and the use of that those poetic devices outside of like the definitions that the academy holds as well as reasons to use similes and metaphors and what they can do in your writing so he articulates a lot better than i do uh the reason to use this literary device uh on a more positive note though a book that i'm still thinking about is in the dream house by carmen maria machado and this is a memoir that absolutely is genre bending so content notes for partner abuse But this is a memoir by Machado, and she is weaving in so many different elements here, where I listen to this on audio, and she narrates this, but the actual, what from what I've seen in the physical copies of this book, is that each section starts as, like, the dream house as blank. And she is using a lot of braiding here, and a lot of really interesting creative nonfiction techniques and it's just it's so expansive in terms of this is what a memoir can be and again i want to read a lot more memoirs but wow i should probably pick up a physical copy of this so i can reference it but vanessa what about you what has made you think about craft i do this thing where i reread things for research because that's how i approach writing Anything can be research. And my research for my manuscript was Vicious and Vengeful by V.E. Schwab. Are we surprised? Not really. I read the series this year because my manuscript is science fiction, but of a quality that I can't really define. And I reread Vicious and I read Vengeful for the first time to understand what I was going for and to consider the sorts of like structural and thematic elements that I wanted to bring into my own work and the sorts of things that I wanted to approach. I don't know, when I'm approaching a work that I'm writing, I understand the atmosphere 
but I have a difficult time putting that atmosphere to words and really identifying the sorts of images and events that I need in the work to communicate said atmosphere. And I think V.E. Schwab does a really good job of that in all her work. And I like tried to really pay attention to what she was doing with the characters, with the setting, with the colors and the textures, and what was going on with the plot to understand how she made the science fiction believable and how her characters felt so real and so unique and so fresh and interesting um, when really like no story is original, you know, we're all just recycling things. So I'm always impressed by that. So that's why I consider this research. Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado, again, was the book that helped me think about writing in terms of short fiction the most. It made me think about what was possible in a short story. And anybody who's known me long enough knows that I didn't always want to write short fiction. I was quite ambivalent on it because it was just something that I had to write for class. It was never something I felt very interested in writing. But reading Machado's work has made me very excited about the possibilities of what I can do in short fiction and made me think of it as a genre that I can actually write and not just for a class assignment, but like something that I can do for my life. And now I'm actually very committed to my upcoming fiction capstone and the work that I can make for that. And I'm excited about stories that haven't even been written. And I'm excited about the stories that are coming after the capstone and what I can do with the concepts that I have. And I don't know, she made me excited about short fiction, which I didn't think anybody would do. So hats off to her. So these are some books that you've been thinking a lot in terms of craft, but what are just books that you're thinking about in general? What's still lingering with you? The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue will live with me always. I've been thinking about it for several years because the first time that I heard V.E. Schwab talk about it was in, I believe, 2016 or 2017 in her interview with Sarah Ennie on the First Draft podcast. So I've been thinking about Addie LaRue for a good four, maybe even five years now. And so she's just lived in my head this whole time. And now, like, she's in the world. She's a, She exists as a character in the book. And it's not, like I said earlier, it's not an easy book to get through. You're moving through a lot of history. And you're moving through a lot of events. And it's quite stressful. Because Addie is a woman who is never remembered. Who cannot be remembered by the people around her. She's just always in danger. And it's terrifying to follow her and to know that uh, one moment somebody might see her as a potential friend and the second they turn around and look back, she's an enemy because they quite literally cannot remember her the second that they take her eyes off of her. So it's just scary. And it's not, it's very difficult to be anonymous in history when towns are so small and cities are so small and there's only so many people. Um, it's not easy to be on your own through all that. And she did that for 300 years. And so, yeah, I think about it a lot. It must have been a nightmare to plan because V.E. Schwab is going back and forth between every few years in the past and then the year 2013. But yeah, another example of writing craft that I admire. I imagine that out of all the books that you wrote this year, one of them still stands out to you. 
What book have you been thinking about still? Surprising no one! The Diviner series by Libba Bray, read by January Lavoy. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's like we joke about this, that we talk about it every single episode. But this is a series that I came to for the first time this summer, and Vanessa revisited. And it's... It's a massive series when I'm talking about, oh, I got back into reading series and big books. I, I'm, this isn't at, at the Diviner series because they're huge. And I am still thinking about these books because Vanessa and I spent a lot of time talking about these books and the characters. And sometimes it's like I'll be going about my day and then I'll think about a certain character and their character development and just... Ah, wow. But, I mean, (laughs) yeah, this series is- this series still lingers, even, like, months after we finished it, just because we spent so much time talking about it and living with these characters, and I am still sad. I- like, I- we've had a headcanon of what a, like, limited or a TV series could look like for the first book. So, yeah, the Diviner series. Please pick it up. Someone talk to me who's not Vanessa. (laughs) Touching upon our third point of what we purport this podcast to be, what developments in the publishing industry surprise you the most? I was really excited to see the democratizing of events, and by that I mean... Previously, you would need a plane ticket and then an event ticket to be able to go to Y'all Fest, Y'all West, North Texas Teen Book Festival, Miami Book Festival, all the sorts of book events where you get to meet your favorite authors, attend their workshops, listen to their panels, those sorts of things. You need a little bit of money and the ability to travel to those locations to attend those events. And obviously, those are just the biggest events. But it's not easy to meet your favorite authors or to attend their workshops, and a lot of people would like to do that, but not everybody's able to. And the one good thing that has come out of remote events is that you can just sit down at your computer and register and then get to see your favorite author lead a workshop. And I was very lucky to be able to watch V.E. Schwab's workshop on the Story Corpse, in which she talks about the story being like a body and you have to build up from the bones to the muscles to the skin and to the makeup and the clothing as if it were a living human and or a corpse you pick um but yeah it's just been good to be able to attend events that I would not have been able to because I'm a student and I'm not a published author so I don't get to go to these events for work and it's exciting because I've never been to Y'all Fest or Y'all West or any of those so To be able to attend any one of those remotely was just a good opportunity that I was glad to have. Yeah, I mean, this isn't my point, but I'm kind of sad that I didn't register for uh, FIACON. FIA is an online magazine. I believe they publish science fiction fantasy, and they hosted the first ever Ignite Awards, which is acknowledging the contributions of Black, Indigenous, and uh, people of color to science fiction fantasy. And I was looking through some of the panels recently, and they look super cool. And that was a fully online event. From what I saw, 
a lot of people were like, this was such a well-run event, it was fantastic. And just on the note of very large industry events, uh, it's worth noting that Reed, uh, I forget like their full name, but the organizer of the uh, BookCon and Book Expo, which are held every summer in New York, they announced earlier this year that they are suspending both of those uh, events for the time being, and that's huge interested to see what that turns into. They had a online event this year that no one knew about just because most of the channels that I hear it from are from booktubers and they it's strange that they didn't invite people with existing online audiences to participate. Anyway, we're not going to criticize that event, but that's also something worth noting. Something that I found interesting this year is how the pandemic revealed that it's possible to do remote work because it's no secret that a lot of publishing is centralized in New York City, which is notoriously expensive. Uh, So like the major hubs are New York, London, Toronto, and Sydney, Australia. And it quite frankly prices a lot of people out of publishing because it's centered in New York City. Because this pandemic has forced people to work remotely, I am really hoping that there are more opportunities that allow for remote work to be possible or that allow for remote positions. And something that I'm interested in seeing with this remote work is, is this going to move forward? Will different publishers continue with this? And also, if remote work is continued, what will diversity look like in big traditional publishing? The elephant in the room here with big New York publishing is the fact that Burlesman, which is the parent company of Penguin Random House, is acquiring Simon & Schuster. Simon & Schuster has gone through a lot this year. I believe their CEO passed away uh, sometime in the first quarter, and this is huge. This is really, really big. Um, So the Big Five is going to become Big Four, and this is big because it's just showing how traditional publishing it's the opportunities it'll be harder to break into the industry this is going to mean a lot of cuts for existing jobs um and already this industry is hard to get into because of like it's a high retention rate like if you land a job a lot of times people stay however This is just talking about large New York publishing, Big Five publishing, which are massive drivers in the publishing industry. However, publishing isn't just these four houses. It's online magazines who are publishing work, both fiction, nonfiction, poetry. It's also a lot of indie presses. Indie presses do a lot in terms of getting stories out there that may otherwise not be told or may not get the chance to be told in traditional publishing or excuse me big like big traditional publishing so the big four aren't the industry it's more than the industry and again shout out to indie presses for what they do to support the writers to support people working in these fields and also just making sure that different stories are getting the opportunity they deserve.
to be extraordinarily clear, we are not putting down any form of publishing here. We are not putting down any form of publishing. This is just something we wanted to acknowledge, especially pointing out that the publishing that happens in New York is not the only publishing that is happening in the United States, in the world. Right. As we approach this new year, what is one goal, either reading or writing, that you've set for yourself that you would like to accomplish in 2021? Complete the first draft of my poetry manuscript. <laughs> yeah, it's it's my senior thesis. Maybe I'm having another crisis about this, but hoping to finish the first draft of this manuscript in the new year. I am terrified. What about you? You can do it. I believe in you. If you've written this much, it's only logical you can write the next bit. Vicious out here with the motivation while I'm just sliding into the pit of despair. <laughs> um, for me, the goal in the first quarter of 2021 is to fully polish the manuscript. So I'm going to be planning out my second draft and the sorts of edits that I want to do for that in the upcoming couple of weeks. And I hope to start those before the new year. And then mid-January, I would like to have those edits completed so that I can get that manuscript over to Alyssa and my other readers, which I'm very thankful for, all the people who are going to be looking at this dumpster fire. And by the second quarter, I would very much like to query. That's the goal for around March or April is to start querying, pitching my manuscript to different agents, seeing who it sticks on. And <laughs> I obviously cannot control whether or not the manuscript will get picked up, but I will make the effort and I will query. And the goal is to find a loving home for it with an agent and then for that agent to find a home for it with an editor at a publishing house. So we shall see. But baby steps. Second draft is first. So we'll, we'll work on the second draft. And best of luck to you. Thanks. Okay, wrapping up this episode, we have reading recommendations. As if we haven't talked about books enough. So, Vanessa, what, what book do you have for me? <laughs> I don't know if you've read this yet. Have you read Notes of a Native Son by James Baldwin? I have not. I don't think I've read any Baldwin, actually. This is good. This is good. My recommendation still stands. So, Notes of a Native Son is a collection of essays written by... American writer James Baldwin. If you don't know Baldwin, he wrote essays, he wrote plays, novels. I believe he wrote short fiction as well. He was just a very um, prolific writer. And I loved reading Notes of a Native Son for a class that I had last semester. It was written during the 1940s and 50s when Baldwin was a young man living through a lot of political and social change in America. He talks a lot about the civil rights movement, Jim Crow, what his experience was like living in Paris when he moved there, because he did live in Paris. Baldwin paints his picture of what it's like to be black in America and what that's like as a gay man living in this time period and what it means to be an individual, what it means to live within a society and the ways that we can work to dismantle structures of oppression and the way that we can create 
moments of freedom in everyday life, and it's really beautiful, and I recommend every one of those essays. All right, so the book that I'm recommending today is a book that I read this year that could have easily fit into the category of a book that I'm still thinking about, and this is An Unkindness of Ghosts by River Solomon, and this is from Akashic Books. In this, it's a science fiction novel, and we are following the character Aster, and she is aboard the HSS Matilda, and this is a space vessel organized much like the Antebellum South. And so you get letters like A through Z, and she is a doctor, um, and she's in one of the lower levels. I think she's in like level U or something, but she gets different privileges moving around the ship because she is... uh, friends with basically like the head doctor of the ship and he's on like level b or c again this is a book that i'm still thinking about because i'm still trying to figure out what happened and this is also solomon's debut novel it does not read like a debut and their writing is so beautiful it's so beautiful um aster is a really interesting character and Content notes for racism, colorism, sexual violence, I may have missed some, but those are the big three that are coming to mind here. Yeah, this is the first work that I read by Solomon. I read a craft essay by them earlier this year as well that I'm also thinking about. It's great. I will add that to the show notes. Um, They have another book called The Deep that I want to pick up, and they have a book coming out next year, which, spoilers, you may hear about in an upcoming episode. But yeah, V, I recommend you this piece of science fiction. I saw the cover for that upcoming book. It's gorgeous. I'm excited. I love a good cover. What I like even more is when authors write debuts that don't sound like debuts. Gonna call out Madeline Miller on this again because she had no business writing the Song of Achilles that well. Thank you for listening to this installment of Dear Literature. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at DearLitPod. That's D-E-A-R-L-I-T-P-O-D. If you've read any of these books or want to read them, leave us a comment on Instagram. The music you heard in this episode was composed by Ben Slizinski. You can find more of his work at bgsmusic.com. The cover art for this podcast was made by our very own Vanessa. Until next time, happy reading. Bye.